мною принято решение о проведении специальной военной операции. We are under attack. It is an attack against Western democracies and on the institutions that bind them. What Russia is much more interested in doing is depicting the West as a failure. Regime and President Yanukovych, they were trying to protect their enormous wealth. This is Kremlin File. Welcome everyone to Kremlin File. And today we're discussing something that is very, um, how can we say, it is not very well covered in the press. And it is another front in the war, Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine. Um, since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, it has faced unprecedented sanctions, yet Russia has been able to obtain Western military components and tech at pre-invasion levels. How is this possible? And today to help us talk about this is Dennis. Dennis, how are you today? Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dennis. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both for the invitation. It's really great to talk to you today, yeah, especially great. about sanctions. Yes, yes. And this is this is really super, super important. Um, just looking at how Western or how Russian missiles, um, even just recently in Odessa, for example, in Kherson, in so many other areas, and just thinking that there are Western components in those, it makes me ill. I have to say this because it's something that I just don't understand. Um, a recent report by Ruzi, for example, said that there are 450 critical components that are sourced from abroad in Russian weaponry. And these components are found in cameras and guidance systems, cell phone tracking, um, computer numerical control machines, motherboards, engines, for example, in the drones, right, Dennis? Uh, and this is just to name a few. I mean, it's incredible, you know, the, the actual uh, scale of this. Um, the Ukrainian... Uh, does the Ukraine do the Ukrainian forces your work? Okay, there's a special unit that is dedicated to looking at all the fragments and everything. Can you tell us a little bit about this before we get into some of the technical issues? Yeah, sure. So, um, first of all, our organization, the ECU, is a non-governmental organization, and we are working on another track, but we are in close communication with with I think all key authorities in Ukraine in the sphere of such analysis, as you just mentioned, and in the sphere of sanctions policy. And I can say that, of course, every every component found on a battlefield or in, in civil areas in Ukrainian cities, they're collected by different bodies in Ukraine, for example, by the Ministry of Defense, by the Intelligence Directorate, by the police, so there are different different bodies responsible for collecting those components, and then then the components are provided to the special uh, research institutions that are connected and affiliated with the specific public authority in Ukraine, and this very institution affiliated with the defense ministry or the police, they are analyzing the, the, the components. They are developing a kind of 
databases that um, include any component found in Ukraine and all the details that can be identified based on the specific components, like the date of the production of this component, the, the origin, for example, the country where the component were, was produced, and so on and so forth. So that's all a kind of closed reports that are prepared for the further analysis and for the development of further uh, analytical reports on sanctions, on sanctions targets, so to say, and on different steps in the sphere of sanctions policy. Wow, it's a monumental job. A monumental job. Right, Olga? Yeah. 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 Especially it's when, my... I mean, Russia is, uh, you know, I mean, is committing terrorist attacks across Ukraine on an hourly basis. I have an app, um, you know, that shows the air raid alerts. And it's like literally every, like, hour, there are multiple air raid alerts across uh, Ukraine. So, I mean, it, I can you imagine the amount of weapons yeah. they have? Still going and like we're already almost 20 months into russia's full-scale invasion and the fact that they have it and that, even worse that at this rate i mean russia can't even produce a kalashnikov without you know western parts and you know we shouldn't be here right now and honestly no. dennis thank you so much for doing this tedious work because no. it's extremely important to track down every single western company that no. is assisting and going against you know the western western for, foreign policy yeah dennis where have you found like where are these parts actually coming from like which countries yeah so it totally depends on the case if we are speaking for example about microelectronics found in, in the Russian missiles or in the Russian UAVs, then we see that I think 80% of, and it's already an open source and public information, that 80% of all microelectronic components found in Russian missiles are manufactured in the territory of the US and by, by the giant US corporations like Texas Instruments, analog devices, microchip technology, and so on and so forth, so we have a limited number of leaders of American leaders on this uh, on this global market. We also saw components by European companies, like the companies from uh, Switzerland, also the companies from Taiwan, South Korea. So that's those countries are the leaders on the global market of microelectronics. But the point is that despite the fact that the components were produced uh, in the West, but we see that almost all of them are going to Russia and are shipped to Russia, are being shipped to Russia by, um, by the Chinese companies. So the main jurisdiction that is used by the Russian Federation to maintain its access to Western technologies in general, and specifically to Western microelectronics is Chinese jurisdiction. So we see lots of companies established in China um, already during the full-scale Russian invasion, and they are shipping lots of and lots of products to the Russian Federation, and they are gathering those products from all over the world, from different European countries, from the US, from Taiwan, and so on and so forth, and then shipping them to Russia. And that's... so. 
we are as experts, we are calling that procurement schemes. So Russia is not using direct cooperation with the manufacturers right now. The Russian Federation is using its own procurement schemes using different so-called so third jurisdictions like China, Turkey, Malaysia. Right now we heard about, just recently we heard about Maldives uh, engaged in Russian procurement schemes. So third jurisdictions are used as an instrument to import critical Western technologies. Wow. Wow. And Dennis, to follow up on that, um, are these companies like their front companies, obviously, is this a new companies established and registered after February of 24? Or are they also using a mix of companies that were already existing inside of China? Yeah, most options are used by the Russian Federation. Even the big Chinese uh, distributors and suppliers that are working with different countries, with the clients from different jurisdictions. They are also used by the Russian Federation for shipments. But uh, often we see that the companies are established or were established in 2022. And even more interesting point that some of those companies are established in China, are registered by Russian citizens. Oh. So that's we're using different Chinese registries and the company can have a Chinese name and Chinese employees. But but the final beneficiary that is uh, indicated in the in the Chinese registries can be the Russian citizen that is connected to some Russian military plants or some Russian subsidiaries and Russian distributors. So that's quite a usual practice for those procurement schemes. Wow. Reminds me of when Russia like used to register like mercenary groups in uh, uh, Hong Kong to send to Syria, and you know, and and then when you actually dig into it, it, it goes back to Russia. On the surface, you look at it, and it's you know obviously not, and then when you look into it, it, it does go back to Russia. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? Um, exactly. And speaking of uh, Western uh, companies, uh, American companies in particular, so in March, PBS exposed an American company in California has automation. And um, they said that they were indirectly supplying um, uh, Russia's defense ministry, I mean, at incredible rates. And they obviously denied it. But then now, about, uh, what, mid um the end of July, a new PBS report came out and now is saying again that Haas Automation continues to do this despite being called out and that they continue to indirectly supply um, uh, Russia's defense ministry. Now, 
we know they know what they're doing because you know at, maybe at the beginning mm -hmm. they could have uh, in March said well we didn't know where it was going we thought we were supplying it here but I mean now a few months later obviously nothing has been corrected and they still continue to do this I know you have done a lot of work on hospital automation can you discuss the case and you know where it stands today yeah, so first of all, we were, the ECU were, were, was working with PBS uh, on this Haas case from, from the very beginning. And the, the reason why we decided to investigate the activities of this company is very important because Haas Automation is one of the biggest manufacturers of so-called CNC, computer numerical control machine tools. Uh, those machine tools are really high precision. And the main point is that the Russian Federation and its military industrial complex is totally dependent on Western machine tools. So um, military industry needs high precision tools for, for everything to manufacture any component, to manufacture any kind of weapons nowadays. And we see that almost all Russian military uh, enterprises producing different kind of military equipment, uh, different weapons, they are all using Western machine tools. And that's why we, we decided to look deeper uh, into this market and to identify the leaders on the global market and to investigate their presence uh, in, in the Russian Federation. And one of, the, of such companies was the American one, Haas Automation, so in the first piece prepared by PBS, based on the information found by, by the ACU, we saw that until October 2022, House Automation continued its direct shipments to the Russian Federation. And the, the point here is that House Automation had a specific mechanism to work in the Russian market. So they had an official distributor, a Russian entity named Abamat. That's not even an entity. That's a kind of holding in the territory of Russia, which, uh, which consists um, of, I think, at least eight companies in different Russian regions. And this company was um, an official distributor of Haas Automation for many, many years. Um, since 2014 at least and we saw that using even Russian open open source open registries open databases of public procurements we identified and we found out that up since 2015 Abamat the company was cooperating intensively with the Russian military industrial complex so it was different Russian enterprises that uh, are producing different kinds of weapons. And of course, and we also found the letter from the pairing company in Oxnard, California from Haas Automation, which said that in just before uh, the, the beginning of the full-scale Russian invasion, Haas Automation just confirmed the official status of, uh, of an official distributor for Abamat, the company. That, that, that happened just on the eve of the Russian, of the full-scale invasion. And we, we are sure that such a big company 
uh, as task automation uh, is, is conducting different due diligence or should have conducted different due diligence procedures while when uh, choosing a right official distributor, especially in such a jurisdiction as the Russian Federation. So we are sure that the company has automation knew all about all possible clients of Abomat, the company, and its cooperation with Russian military industrial complex. And that was the problem. So we are even so in this situation, even so the point is that it is important to not just look at the activities of the company during 2022 or 2023, hmm. but to see the history of cooperation of this American company with the Russian Federation. And looking at this history, at this background, we see that all this cooperation with Abomat uh, between House Automation and Abomat in the Russian Federation is full of potential sanctions violations. And that's what we would like to say in our first, first piece uh, with PBS News Hour. Concerning the second story, we see it right now that has automation terminated all, and, and it needs to be clarified. The parent company headquartered in Oxford, California, terminated all, all direct shipments to the Russian Federation. But we also see that Abamat the whole holding and its management company, management entity, is still maintaining access to Haas products, especially critical components for Haas machine tools. The, this access is maintained, but the shipments, all the products are going from one and the same company. So there is only one supplier that is supplying Abamat in the Russian Federation with Haas automation products. And this is, once again, the company registered in China. So it's, its name is Suzhou Bastak Machine Tools LTD. And that's an unknown company registered in China that is providing lots of and lots of goods for worth millions of dollars to Abamat, the company in the Russian Federation. And we also try to find some data on this company in Chinese registries. And... The thing we, we managed to find is the most interesting point here is that this Chinese company's, company was registry, registered already during the full-scale Russian invasion in, 20, in the summer of 2022. So it seems that the company was designed and established just to be included and engaged in such procurement schemes. So once again, we are getting back to, to this usual practice for the Russian Federation. Right now, we do not know exactly if Haas Automation in Oxnard, California is directly engaged in this, uh, in all this uh, procurement scheme. But we are sure that Haas Automation should be the party that should control such shipments. So such shipments, they are called gray or parallel import. And the Russian Federation even has its own authorities that are responsible for such parallel import. And we are sure that the companies should be responsible for oversighting all, all such shipments and reporting on a regular basis to the relevant authorities, for example, in Washington, about all the procurement companies and front companies that are engaged in illicit 
shipments of its own products to the Russian Federation. But this problem can be solved only when all the parties are engaged, so to say. So the business should launch and initiate some, some steps on their side, but also the legislative, the legal framework should be changed. So we see that corporate responsibility in the sphere of anti-money uh, laundering is very strict. Mm. But we need such a framework in the sphere of gray and parallel import. So we need corporations to be actually responsible for all and any shipments of their products to some rogue states, not only to the Russian Federation, but also to Iran. But right now, when the company see some its products going to Russia indirectly from some unknown uh, intermediaries, it's just not responsible. The company just says that, okay, we cannot control that. And the reason for such statements is that legal framework is not prepared. The companies are not actually responsible for such operations. So that's the problem. Yeah. And we know that these parts are vital, right, to the Russian sure. war effort. Of course. This is, as you said, 70, 80, no percent. And just to clarify, 2014 is extremely important and critical because that's when Russia illegally annexed Crimea, occupied parts of Donbass, set up concentration camps that Europe and the United States and everyone ignored. And that's why 2014, you know, there were sanctions put into place of many of the, you know, companies related to Russia's military um, industry and Russia's oligarchs and businessmen who were involved in that illegal annexation of Crimea. And the fact that Haas, um, you know, signed this right prior to the full-scale invasion in 2022, I mean, from late fall to December in a very unprecedented move, uh, the United States and UK intelligence were sharing information publicly. Play by play, saying the yeah. Russia is preparing a full scale invasion, you know, and they, whatever they were receiving, they were putting out into the public sphere. So for Haas to actually ignore the fact that Russia's military was built up both on Belarus, on Ukraine's borders, and then the fact that, you know, you had intelligence agencies warning about that any day with even a date of when Russia potentially uh, was about to launch a full-scale invasion. And the U.S. intelligence, I believe, said February 21st. It uh, happened February 24th. But there were also reports that there were tanks rolling through um, around the 21st, 22nd through uh, Russia's illegally occupied areas. So just to clarify that point, this is why these gate, uh, dates are very key, because in 2014, frankly, anyone you know, should have stopped. If they didn't stop with Georgia's invasion, they should have stopped in yeah. 2014 because this is on European soil, a uh, country taking uh, territory from a sovereign country just because they feel like it. Now, go ahead, Mo, your yeah. question. No, getting back, exactly. When I'm just thinking of this stuff, uh, Dennis, as you were saying before, is actually vital for the Russians. Have you seen an increase in Russian military production, let's say, during the war? You know, are they back to pre-war levels or what are we talking about here? 
Yeah. So that's a critical question. And we're not intelligence, actually. So it's very difficult for us to, to answer those questions, even within our investigations. But the question is real critical. What we can see is that, so, okay, we can see the missile terror here in Kyiv. So we're, uh, our organization is based in Kyiv. And every day, just like you mentioned, we see aerial attacks, we see new, new casualties. And we also see the analysis of, of the missiles. And we can see that the missiles that are being used right now by the Russian Federation against Ukraine, they're produced in 2023. And this, this point, this fact indicates that Russia maintained its, uh, its access to the critical components. So they, the Russian Federation is able to produce new and new missile right now. So that's what we can see. We are also analyzing Russian, Russian statements, Russian uh, media spheres, so to say, to understand what the Russians are saying about their military industry. But, and we see that different, um, different Russian military enterprises are reporting on and announcing about the increase in their production but this uh, such statements can be very ambiguous because you you should assess where the Russians are saying just untrue to to post um, to position themselves as very uh, as the country without any problems in the military industry. But sometimes such information from the Russian media, from the Russian sources, can also be very useful to understand what they are up to, what is the, the actual status of their military industry, and so on and so forth. So you need to combine the information gathered from different sources. And of course, even if the production did not increase in the Russian Federation, we can see that it is still viable and it is still uh, operating. And that's the main problem. Problem. So the problem is not the increase. We need to, to reduce the Russian capacity to produce weapons. And that's what we are monitoring every day. So that's, that's the problem. Yeah. Speaking of and which, this is, oh no, go ahead, go ahead. No, and I just wanted to know, when did you see um, the increase in components? Or where, when do you mm. think they increased the components? Because um, it would be interesting, like, for instance, China is a key player. Were they in coordination when Russia and did it, you know, started increasing prior to the full-scale invasion? Was it when Russia realized mm. that they are not taking Ukraine in a matter of, you know, three days? Um, and that, that's when they went out and sought, you know, help from their partners. Do you have an approximate time frame of when it started? Yeah, sure. So we have different stages. It was different trends within, within those periods. So, of course, uh, the first increase in their imports of critical components of different Western technologies was just on the eve of the full-scale invasion. They were preparing because it's it's quite logic. Uh, they were preparing for the future sanctions. So we are sure that the Russian Federation knew 
uh, while that the sanctions will uh, will be imposed after the first the first day of the full scale invasion. That's why they were preparing and just preparing and developing the stockpiles that that they were using. Then we just after straight away after the beginning of the full scale Russian invasion during the first months, I, I think from three to four months, when the first, uh, so to say, export controls, export bans, and financial sanctions were imposed by different Western countries like the US, the EU member states, the UK. So we saw a huge decrease in the Russian imports of critical components. So they were, first of all, they already had their stockpiles. And the second one, they, at that time, they needed to prepare their procurement schemes. They needed to establish new supply chains, to establish new companies, even in third jurisdictions, to decide on what jurisdictions can be used and so on and so forth. So that's a huge work to, to develop new sanctions evasion schemes. And when those, in the summer, we saw one more increase. So in the summer 2022, we saw one more uh, point of increase of imports uh, into, into the Russian Federation of all, all kinds of, uh, of critical Western components, microelectronics, CNC machine tools, different optical equipment, and so on and so forth. So right now in 2023, we have different opinions with uh, different think tanks and analytical institutions. So it's right now, it depends. We, we cannot see, we have only data for two quarters of 2022. So we cannot see a whole picture and a whole trends. But right now it depends on the category of the products. Even in microelectronics, we see the decrease um, in, in the imports of semiconductors, for example. But we, we see the increase in, in the imports of uh, transistors and other kinds of microelectronics. So it totally depends right now on, uh, on a specific category. But the imports are continuing, uh, continuing and they are remaining on, on, a stable, on a stable level right now. We, we see no decrease and that's, that's also an issue for all sanctions authorities in all um, all Western states and, and in Ukraine too. Dennis, can I ask you, how do they bring them in actually? Is it like in the clear? They have all these micro components. I mean, th this stuff goes into guidance systems that then, you know, are used in missiles to hit Ukrainian cities. Do they just come in in, like, I, I'm sorry if this is such a stupid question, but... No, no, that's not a stupid question. That's very, that's very important question, especially in when we are speaking about microelectronics. So why it is so complicated and so so difficult to control all those shipments of microelectronics to the Russian Federation? Because microchips are very small, to be honest. Yeah. And they can be shipped to the Russian Federation in, in numerous ways. Almost all, all possible ways that you just mentioned. Cars, ships, just in backpacks of some, some Chinese citizens, for example, or European citizens, wow. or just in the pocket 
So it's, it's quite a simple task to ship microchips that are very small to, to the Russian Federation. And that's the main point why this market and this trend with microelectronics is very, is very difficult to control. And that's also the reason why we are sure that controlling the shipments or, or just curbing the, the scale of shipments of microelectronics is a tactical step, so to say. But we need to keep in mind the strategic steps, like focusing on CNC machine tools and other instruments. So we need, right now, we need to work on the spheres of Russian industry that are used to produce microelectronics. So we can see already that Russia is trying to replace Western microchips by their own microchips. So they are right now developing their own production of microelectronics. And to develop this production, they still need high precision tools of different, of different kinds. One of such kinds is CNC machine tools. CNC machine tools can be used and are usually used to produce microelectronics, for example, because you also need very high precision tool to produce and manufacture such a small component. And that's why in, in short perspective, we of course need to monitor and try to control the market of microelectronics. But in the longer perspective, we need to focus on instruments that the Russian Federation is used to, to maintain its industry in general, to pr produce different things and to replace uh, Western components and to reduce its dependence on the Western technologies. So that's the strategic point. Yeah, no, I, I, just a little shout out to my uncle who watches our podcast all the time and who works for a tool and die maker. Uh, that's why I know about machine, you know the CMCs and how important they are. Um, he tells uh, me, I no, they make everything, sorry. <laughs> and I actually laugh because you're like, how did they get them in? I was actually um, working on something and literally the invoices were like apples and bananas. Like it was this guy's approach, yeah. not microchips. Yeah. There was something else. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, we see all this kind of stuff at the border. I mean, I remember seeing also um, coming in through Georgia before. No, they come in through Iran. They, you were telling us China, no, through Hong Kong, the companies themselves. But the actual physical roots, are they still the same? Or the, are, are, are you also taking yeah, steps Belarus to cut those was off? A, Belarus um, also was a very key component because I knew yeah. I, uh, uh, someone had told me that there was, you know, a headquarters of something that was set up in Belarus and that it was, you know, going through Bulgaria and several countries like in circles and then making its way to Belarus and then into Russia. But what are you seeing, uh, Dennis, as far as, you know, uh, do you see more activity? Well, obviously we know China's fully involved. We also know Iran is fully yeah. involved. But uh, are you seeing, um, you know, this happening with countries in Europe, within Europe? And also, while we're at that, can you discuss uh, the Swiss company? Because I know there was a Swiss company who was also involved, and um, you worked on that case as well. Yeah, sure. So just getting back to um, to the previous into the previous question about the ways 
uh, Russia is importing its goods. So yeah, it, um, it depends also on the category of the product. When we are speaking about some components that are used in weapons, we see that China is an absolute leader, an absolute leader. So we were, the ACU was analyzing Russian military enterprises one by one. So we're, we were selecting some Russian military plant that is producing, for example, caliber missiles. And we were trying to analyze and to identify all the supply chains of this, of this very plant. And we analyzed, I think, at least nine of such military enterprises. And most of the foreign suppliers of Western components for such plants were from China or Hong Kong. So that's Chinese jurisdiction is the leader uh, in the military sphere. But when we are speaking about other jurisdictions, when we are speaking about CNC machine tools, Turkey is also a very important jurisdiction. So we see lots of Turkish companies that are providing uh, CNC machine tools and their components worth also millions of dollars to the Russian Federation, to different Russian companies. And one supplier can serve in parallel, I think, from three to 10 different enterprises and entities in Russian, in the, in the Russian Federation that are connected to Russian military industrial complex. So Turkey in what is one more jurisdiction. Recently, as I already mentioned, we heard about, and I think that that was for the first time when we heard about the Maldives engagement and in all those procurement schemes. And right now, according to some think tanks and their reports, we see that in the sphere of microelectronics, uh, Maldives is the second player after China and Hong Kong. Yeah. So it's, it's the second jurisdiction, but we need to separate those those two directions, microelectronics, critical for military industry and microelectronics, critical, for example, for maintaining the operation of banking institutions, mm -hmm. of differing public authorities, uh, of critical infrastructure, and so on and so forth. So there are different kinds of microelectronics and different needs in the Russian Federation. When we are speaking about other jurisdictions like Georgia, like Kazakhstan, like Armenia, all of them and their legal entities and their individuals, their citizens are also involved in Russian procurement schemes. But based on our experience, we see that Kazakhstan and Armenia are used more to import some civilian goods that are needed to fill the, this empty Russian market just products for for uh, for shopping. For example, iPhones are going through Armenia, Kazakhstan, and Georgia. So they are just sold uh, in the territory of the Russian Federation, just in uh, in uh, simple shops. So that's and we also see that those smaller jurisdictions they are already responding. To some to some requests by the U.S. government, so we saw the that uh, the representatives of the U.S. Ministry of uh, Department of the Treasury and Department of Commerce they already visited all of those jurisdictions 
So especially Kazakhstan, Armenia, and Georgia. And Kazakhstan already responded to such, such visits. Uh, as far as we know right now, the banks located and registered in Kazakhstan are blocking all the transactions that are connected to the shipments of microelectronics. So that's the first step. Hmm. So the hypothesis among the sanctions expert, right, experts right now is that even companies in such jurisdictions as Kazakhstan or China are dependent or on their banks, on Chinese banks or banks in Kazakhstan, for example. And those very banks, in turn, they are still dependent on the corresponding banks located in the U.S. or in the EU. So that's a kind of leverage that can be still used by, by such organizations, NGOs like the ACU, or investigative groups, or investigative journals, or even by the authorities. So this link between the corresponding banks, the biggest banks in the world located in the US or the EU or the UK or in Switzerland, and the Chinese banks that are servicing all those procurement schemes or banks in Kazakhstan that are servicing procurement schemes. These links can be used to put more pressure on Russian procurement schemes, but it also needs to be done on a regular basis by big part, big batches, so and system, very systematically and very in a very coordinated way. So when it's just um, five companies sanctioned in a month, that will not work at all, because we need to to show that that is the trend. That is the trend in the sphere of sanctions. That is the real risk for every bank servicing procurement companies, for every procurement company servicing the Russian Federation. So that's such a general idea that the ECU is right now promoting, along with different other NGOs in the sphere of sanctions. That's the main message that we would like to, to forward to Ukrainian government and to the foreign government. We need a new mechanism, at least in the sphere of procurement companies. We need a new quick, efficient, coordinated, and regular and systematic mechanism with common criteria for imposing sanctions on uh, procurement companies and among all the states members of so-called sanctions coalition. And we hope that in future, we will see such a new mechanism. But right now we need to we need to brought, brought all of all these ideas and all these findings to the attention of the relevant uh, of the relevant authorities, and that's why it is important to talk about this. Yeah, extremely important. And the new mechanism needs to come very quickly because every single yeah. day we see is more Ukrainians dying um, and being murdered by exactly. Russia. So I mean, we need to. This is the you know not the time to play textbook theory. This is the time that yeah. things should have been done yesterday. I mean, last year, yesterday. At a minimum today, immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything, Dennis, that can be done? Uh, let's say pressure put on the actual manufacturers themselves. And who would do that? Yeah, sure. And so, of course, there are different different stakeholders that could, can put pressure on, on the manufacturers. 
And one of such categories of stakeholders is NGOs. So the ECU is doing its job to put pressure on the manufacturers. But our goal is not to chase the specific companies. Yeah. Uh, our goal is to solve the problem, to, to deprive the Russian Federation of its access to Western technologies. But our activities, so we are using different instruments. We're using media relations, the cooperation with different investigative journalists to, to, to make public the information that we are finding. We, so our main goal is to make our information and make our findings work. And that's why we are cooperating with investigative journalists, with other think tanks that are publishing their reports, like RUSI, on, mm -hmm. uh, on the manufacturers of Russian Orlan 10 UAVs, where we were cooperating with RUSI on that investigation. And of course, with the governments, with the Ukrainian government and with the foreign governments. But speaking about, about the influence and impact on the behavior of different Western corporations, of course, we need to engage governments. That's, that's the first stakeholder that we need to reach out to. Because as I already mentioned, we need to change, frame, change framework, legal framework, in the sphere of so-called corporate responsibility. We need to make it very clear and really strict. So right now, we see that the global security system has changed and it also influenced the global market. So just before the full-scale Russian invasion, the social responsibility of the corporations were connected to um, eco issues, yeah, mm -hmm. green economy mm -hmm. and so on and so forth the anti-money laundering and good good uh, governance within the, the corporations. But right now we need to add one more thing. So we need to add to the social responsibility, the proper control of supply chains, so to say. So the corporations should be actually responsible for their products being delivered by any entity, any individual on the global market. They need to invest new, new, uh, more and more money into new technologies, new mechanism, digital mechanism uh, to control those supply chains, to monitor all the shipments, to monitor the customs data and so on and so forth. They need to invest money in human resources into regular checks so we know that Japanese companies, uh, they are even visiting the plants of their final, final customers to check if the technologies, if the equipment or components they sold to this client mm -hmm. were actually installed on this very plant. And that's the approach that every corporation in the world should, uh, should use in this sphere. But we understand that, that the companies need some help from the government. So the legal framework should change. And then the companies will invest their own money into those new procedures. But not, also, not only governments, bank and fin banks and financial institutions. 
So the business, international business, should understand from different sides, from different points of contact, that, that, that they need to control this, uh, this situation to proceed with their business. Because if they are not controlling such processes, such supply chains and their cooperation with uh, the road states, they will have no, for example, contracts with the government. They will have mm. no cooperation with big investors. They will now uh, they will not have any cooperation with financial institutions in the world. So they will have only reputational, financial, and business problems if they are not controlling their supply chains. So this system in whole should be changed. But I think the first thing is legislation, of course. Yeah. Yeah, the first step of traceability, let's say. What you were talking about is traceability. The Whatever gets you no know, manufactured, you can find out exactly where it is. And accountability. And, and accountability. accountability. I mean, I don't... Yeah. Yeah, I exactly. don't understand any company that thinks, you know, I mean, frankly, every company that is helping Russia commit genocide should be yeah. labeled as that. Like, that should be on their homepage. Yeah. Like, we yeah. are helping Russia commit genocide. We are, you know, yeah. helping Russia evade uh, sanctions and making sure that they continue to produce weapons to conduct this illegal war. Just to add to this, to this issue. So right now, everybody knows that the top management, top officials of any corporation in the United States is criminally responsible for, for example, for submitting uh, some wrong information in their financial reports to the SEC, for example. Yeah, so the top yeah. management, top officials yeah. are really actually responsible. They, they can simply go to jail for submitting uh, wrong information that is, uh, is yeah. not relevant. So the same practice should be introduced in this sphere. The accountability, that's the right point. So the accountability should be uh, formalized in the legislation. Maybe a new kind of reports should be introduced. And if the company says that, okay, our products are not used in any military, uh, military equipment in any country of the world, and then, the the authorities are are finding the opposite the opposite thing then the top officials should be responsible for submitting wrong information in their reports so that can be kind of just in simple words of course mm -hmm. it should be elaborated but in simple words that's a kind of new practice that should be introduced here 100% yep on a personal note Dennis um how are you handling this because i mean it's yeah what, 18, 20 months of Russia's uh, full-scale invasion. I don't think there is one Ukrainian who has slept the full night because Russia likes to terrorize people and drop bombs every two hours. So you can't, you take a nap, go to a bomb shelter and so forth. How are you, like, personally? How is your family? And, you know, how are you able to do this important work, you know, with so much terror 24-7? Yeah, but thank you for asking, first of all. Uh, fortunately, my family is right now based uh, in the Western Ukraine. So it's a bit uh, a bit easier situation there right now, uh, even than the, the situation in Kyiv. But of course, 
I'm sure that everyone in, in the ECU uh, knows that we are not on the front line. So there are lots of lots of Ukrainian citizens that are right now on the front line. So our main task right now is to do everything as much as possible to help them in any way. So they are right now confronting the enemy on the front line. So we can, they are saving time for us to do some strategic work, to do some, for example, in the economic sphere. And we are just doing as much as possible. And about uh, our, just just my feelings about aerial attacks and just my uh, moral, uh, just my thoughts. So the, the solution is quite simple, to do a lot of work. So when you are working constantly, constantly mm -hmm. on, on different, on different tax, tasks, you, you have no time to be worried about, uh, to be worried about your, even your life, so to say, you know? Yeah. And when you understand there are a lot of people, my colleagues, my relatives that are on the front line. So that's, that's a kind of motivation. And every aerial attack is a kind of bad and unfortunate, but motivation to do more and more in our sphere. To came to come up with new solutions, how to control this. So today I shared with you a lot of thoughts about and lots of hypotheses, that just hypothesis. But we are constantly constantly thinking about new ways to control the situation, to curb Russian capacity to to use Western technologies, because that's that's just impossible for us to let them use their, uh, all those technologies because that can be an infinite process then. Mm. The work can be infinite. If they, they, let's be honest, they have their money right now. Of course, the situation is worsening every, every month, every quarter, but they have money. So they, can, they have money to import goods. So we need to deprive them of access, yeah. okay? And that's what we are trying to do. And that's what we are focused on every day. And yeah, and motivation is, so we are, we have no lack of motivation because every attack in the night of Shahid drones, yeah. uh, UAVs, and I know that every Shahid drone uh, consists of 80% of it consists of Western Western components. And I'm just thinking how to, how to solve the situation quicker, you know? My God. You know, when and I this is that, why I'm Ukraine just, will win. This yes, is why exactly, exactly, this? exactly. Well, Dennis, you're working on another front. I mean, each Ukrainian citizen is dedicated, right? In one way or another, there are you know, those who are dedicating their lives up front in the front lines there. But the work that you're doing and that a lot of other Ukrainians are doing uh, in civil society I'm thinking also the information sphere, everything you know, is geared towards that. But as you're saying, 70, 80% of Western components in, in it, that just freaks me out. I have to be very honest. When I saw all the information, I just said, no, this is something that we need to talk about. And, uh, and the work you're, you're doing is fundamental for this. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and honestly, thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for explaining it. You know, because people really, really like this is not a covered story, really. Yeah. And this story is what actually, you know, taking steps in this 
can actually save lives. I mean, this is something that immediately can start saving lives. Thank you so much for coming on. And thank you. And Ukraine will prevail because, Mo, yeah. like you said, everyone and whatever talent they have, whatever skill they have, everyone is working in sync, unlike the Russians who can get, who can only commit terrorist attacks. Everyone in Ukraine is working in sync to make sure to, you know, to uh, defeat Russia and make sure that this is finished once and for all. Yeah, and I would like to thank you once again for the invitation and in general. So we are working on this on this project, so to say, for more than a year. And during this time, I I talked to lots of and lots of people from the United States, from the EU, from different Western states, was the most prominent experts in their spheres. And it was a kind of surprise. Uh, at mm -hmm. the first stages for me, that even the most prominent experts are ready to talk to me and to help us and our organization to solve our problems, to, to think, to gather on new solutions. And that's very valuable. So we need to, to maintain this coordination, to maintain, because it's actually, it's mutually beneficial. Of course, Ukrainians yeah. need this help, but in a strategic perspective, that's a mutually beneficial thing. That's, we are right now creating a new system, a new solution that will help the whole world to solve such problems. Ukraine is the first, is the first example of such a scale. But we, I, I'm sure we will need those solutions in the future. And that's, that, that's what we need uh, to keep in mind. So thank you. Thank you to all the experts that are helping to our organization, of course, to you that because it's very important to talk and to discuss and to bring all these thoughts to the attention uh, of the broader public and to the authorities. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to help us out with our independent work, please subscribe to Kremlin File on Substack and on our YouTube channel. Kremlin File is hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Kamara. Our production team is headed by Maddie Kaparov and the theme music by Oreste Kamara. So please don't forget to visit our Kremlin File Substack for links to our socials and to wherever you'd like to listen to podcasts.